Luke chapter 9. And while you're going there, I'm going to read a couple verses from John 1, but I want you to be kind of pre-positioned in the place that we uh, need to be for our uh, time in the Word tonight. As we continue our study that we've entitled Living Proof, and uh, we'll kind of explain uh, that again to you in case you're uh, just catching up with us. But, uh, you know, we, we think of of these people that God used, and we, you're, I think you're beginning to see a pattern if you've been with us, that when something significant is happening in the, in the unfolding plan of God, he sees to it that there are witnesses available to, to verify and to authenticate what is occurring, that it did occur. It occurred as it says it happened. And one of those was a man for, in, our, in our text for tonight. It's a man by the name of John. We know him as the Apostle John, a beloved apostle, wrote the Gospel of John, obviously, also wrote the uh, first, second, and third John, those letters to the church, and also is the John who uh, was given the revelation of Jesus Christ to finish the, old, the, New, the New Testament. It says in verse 14 of chapter 1 of his Gospel, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. We beheld his glory. We saw it. There were some of us who got this glimpse of it, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John was a man that had a glimpse of the Lord Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry that no one else had. And then, frankly, John was privileged beyond that to see Jesus revealed in yet future when he was snatched, at least in the spirit, off the island of Patmos and caught up into the third heaven, as Paul describes it, and saw these wondrous things happening in advance. So let's go back to Luke chapter 9, where we have the account of John and two others having this significant interaction with the glory of God. We've entitled this one, Witnesses of His Glory. Witnesses of His Glory. We begin with this, you can go, you can go to the verse there if you will, go back. And let me just go ahead and read this. This is a verse that uh, comes from uh, the Old Testament, obviously, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, 15, where God says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or sin that he commits, but by the mouth of two or three witnesses the matter shall be established. And it seems as if God just keeps that same standard of proof throughout the Bible, and you're going to see that. We've looked at the, the two that were crucified with Jesus. We talked about the two who were there at the burial of Jesus, Nicodemus and, and Joseph of Arimathea. Last time we talked about there were two witnesses to the torn veil that we don't know who they were, but obviously to know the details that we have in Scripture, and God had arranged that so that there would be witnesses to that. So witnesses of his glory. If you'll go to chapter 9 of Luke, and we'll begin reading in verse 27. I just want to read this whole passage so we can hear it all in its entirety, and then we're going to kind of break it apart and look at uh, different pieces of it. Jesus speaking in verse 27, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. And uh, that is a hint that what is about to happen is the fulfillment of what he predicts in verse 27. They're going to have a view that no one else has had. Verse 28, now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him and were, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decrease, 
which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Now it happened that as they were parting from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, verse 34, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but, those, but they kept quiet and told no one of those in those days any of the things that they had seen. Obviously, they didn't keep it quiet indefinitely because we have the account in front of us. This is what we, we typically call the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus. In fact, some translations would say altered. He, it would actually say in the text he was transfigured. There was something about his appearance that was changed an altered state of, of their understanding and their perception of him. I don't know about you, but this has been a, one of those portions of the gospel story that there's a lot of mystery surrounding it. I mean, we read the facts. The facts are, are not in question. But well, what is the bigger point? What is God trying to tell us through this? Well, we might say that, well, there's some obvious things. It's telling us something about the significance of Jesus. But why do Moses and Elijah show up? What's their role? And why the cloud and the voice from heaven? And why are Peter, James, and John the ones that are there? And there's questions. There's mysteries. I will not answer all of your mysteries, nor can I answer all of mine. But as I've studied this, I've come to a little different perspective that I've never had before. And there is something very significant, if you start putting things together, that, that this event is very, very important. Now, I want to I want to get all the pieces of the puzzle out on the table and start moving them around, and hopefully we can snap some into place. And then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll hopefully we can solve this mystery together. So let's begin tonight by talking about the cast of characters, okay? Let's just let's have a little discussion about the people and the piece, people who are there, the cast, of, the cast of characters, okay? First of all, there's these three witnesses from heaven, okay? Well, you say, I don't count three. Well, I, we're, there's going to be at least three, okay? It tells us that as he was praying and as his, as his appearance was altered, verse 30, and behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah. Well, what's the most striking thing about that? Well, they have been gone from the earth for a long period of time. They have been in heaven for a long time. However, this is a part of the mystery that I can't, I, I just find it interesting. The two men that show up to talk to Jesus are also two men that, who had, shall we say, unusual departures from this life. Now, we are told that Moses died after he went up the mountain on Mount Nebo. He got to see the, he got to see the promised land, but he did not get to enter in. And the Bible says, this, says specifically that God buried him, and no one knows where his grave is to this day. Now, that just, uh, by the way, one of the few people that God gave a, a funeral to all, all, all in himself. And God saw to it that the body was cared for and buried. And God did that without any human effort. And then you have Elijah. Remember Elijah? He, he and Elisha, his, uh, his successor, are walking along. And suddenly this fiery chariot shows up. And it kind of gets between the two of them and separates them. And then a whirlwind comes. Think tornado, if the best way I can say it. And just sort of picks Elijah up and transports him into heaven. Now, I know every Bible story book you've ever had shows 
Elijah hanging on the back of the fiery chariot, you know, and his hair's out, and, his, and of course he's dropping his mantle. You remember that's part of the story. It's kind of fluttering down. The chariot just separated them. It says he went, went in a whirlwind. If you want one of those questions to stump your Bible scholar friends, just ask him, how did Elijah get to heaven? They'll all say fiery chariot, wrong answer. But suffice it to say, he had an unusual departure. And perhaps those unusual departures are at least hints that God's not quite done with them yet. Case in point. And then there's also that mysterious passage that we find over in Revelation. We studied it some weeks ago where these two witnesses show up. Unnamed in the text, John does not identify them. But the miracles they did are the same miracles that Moses and Elijah did in the Old Testament. So they're at least Moses and Elijah-like. And maybe they are Moses and Elijah version... Well, if this is version 2.0, that might be version 3.0. I don't know how you'd say that. But, but God's got something out there, and he kind of drops that hint to us. But more importantly, uh, there's, a, there's several places, and it's, if you see it on the text in front of you, in Luke 24, 44, and John 1, 45, there's a phrase made about the law and the prophets. Jesus said, all that the law and the prophets predicted of me will be fulfilled. So if they looked at the Bible in, 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 in Bible times, particularly New Testament times, the Old Testament was viewed as two components. The law, that would be the Torah, the first five books of, of the Bible, the, the portion of the Bible that Moses directly was the human author of. And then you have the prophets, the rest of it. That's, that was just a common way of saying it. And basically what Jesus was saying, all that the law says and all that the prophets say All of that somehow is pointing and is fulfilled in me. It might be similar to, this might be not too much of a stretch, for us to say both the Old Testament and the New Testament all describes that Jesus is the Messiah and and proves that. So it's basically the sum total of the scriptures as they knew him at that time spoke of him. So who is the lawgiver? Moses. Who is the greatest of the prophets? I think you would put Elijah in that category. And so they are at least representative of those two. So the two who show up are bringing some sort of authentication to the fact that the witnesses that God calls is a representative of the lawgiver and the prophets. So it's basically a way of saying all that is fulfilled is being fulfilled in Jesus. Everything is as it should be. And then there's one more witness from heaven, and that's down at the end of the account. Uh, after it says that uh, poor Peter, after it says he didn't know what he was saying... And while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. There's no doubt who's speaking, right? This is my beloved son. This is God the Father speaking. So you have three witnesses from heaven, the the, the voice of God from heaven and Moses and Elijah, all being called to what is occurring here. And that's what we're going to try to deduce what the significance of that is, to be the witnesses from heaven. Now also, this has a very... Israel perspective stamped all over it. It's very Jewish because, by the way, all of the humans on the mountain were Jewish, right? Moses, Elijah, Peter, James, John. We could put Jesus in that category, although he's both God and man. In his humanness, he was of Jewish extraction, a son of Israel. And so all of this, all this kind of speaks of Israel. So just kind of file that away. And then there are these witnesses from earth. Peter, James, and John. And you might say, what are the witnesses from... If you want to flip the next slide up there, please. What are the, what are the significances of these three? How come there's not 12 there? 
How come not all the disciples got invited? I can't really answer that except that he made sure that there was at least three. At the mouth of two or three witnesses, let these things be established. So he arranges it. And I I suspect since Moses and Elijah are sort of representatives of a bigger picture than just their individual lives, the law and the prophets, I think these three are selected to also be prime choice witnesses to authenticate what is occurring here at the Transfiguration. You think of, you think of a Peter. Let's start with him. Uh, and, and Well, first of all, all three of them are disciples slash later apostles, all right? But then you think of Peter. Here's, here's this man who wrote uh, a letter, two letters, first and second Peter. He also was this, this one that Jesus says, I'm going to give you the keys, and I, we don't, can't get into all that, but it seemed as if Peter was there when, the, obviously, Peter preached when the Spirit of God came upon the, the, the Jews there in Jerusalem. He was also there. You remember the story at Cornelius' house when the, when the Spirit of God comes upon the Gentiles? He was there sort of in these key events when the gospel was spreading. He was the choice spokesman for the apostles during those early days. And then you have John. John was not only a writer of three letters that included in the New Testament, but also the Gospel of John, which is this, this beautiful masterpiece of the story of Christ. And then he's the, also the writer of Revelation. So John is, is, is the, sort of the writing uh, apostle, if you will. Peter's kind of the leading and writing apostle, but, G, but John is that, that writing, the, the Revelation, the apocalypse of the, of the appearance of Christ, and then the Gospel and the, the epistles in the, in the, in the meantime. And then you have James. Well, where does, where does James fit in? Well, James, as you understand, was one of the 12. He also factors very prominently into the, into the gospel story. And James, if you will recall, in the book of Acts, he was the first of the apostles, not the first martyr, but he was the, the first of the apostles to give his life for the cause of Christ. You remember Herod put him in prison and beheaded him, and Peter was going to be next, and they had the all-night prayer meeting, and Peter got let out of prison by, by an angel. And, and maybe we're caused to ask, well, why didn't, uh, why didn't James get, get a, a, an angelic commando raid and get him out of jail? It was within the will of God that he would give his life for the testimony of Christ. And frankly, what better witness could you have of the truth, of someone who would give his life for the truth? By the way, all James would have had to have said to get out of jail was, oh, that stuff about the resurrection of Jesus... Okay, you got me. It was, we made that up. We stole the body. It was all a fraud. And frankly, if it was a fraud, he should have given that up. Who wants to die for something you know isn't true? The fact was he gave his life for something he knew was true. And God has these three special disciples slash apostles on hand to verify this is true. All Jewish, but also going to be used in special ways. So here's your first clue. Something very important, of extreme importance, is to Israel particularly, is happening in this story. So kind of, kind of put that clue in, into, the, into the mix. Now let's go to another set of clues, and I'm going to give you another piece of the puzzle. Let's talk about this process you see unfolding in the text in front of us. Let's just sort of list it as it comes. Can we do it that way? So verse 27, and you can bring up that, that, that this list as it comes. But in verse 27, there's this promise that they will see the kingdom. You're going to see the kingdom. Now, the kingdom isn't out there to be seen, but you're going to see the kingdom in some aspect of it, some reality of it, 
And in essence, I think what he's hinting at, and I think they would, would agree with me if they were able to converse with us, that they're getting a little preview of things to come. This is the trailer for the, for the, for the story to about to, to unfold, even yet future for us, okay? Secondly, the select group go up on a mountain to pray. Jesus is there praying, and uh, we talked about that this morning in Mark chapter 1 where he went into this deserted place, and he's praying, so this was his custom. Peter, James, and John didn't think this was strange. It doesn't, think, it, it doesn't seem that they were uh, particularly uh, expecting anything to happen. But it says, and while he prayed, as he prayed, 29, his appearance and his face were altered. That's the next one. The appearance of his face and his, his appearance, his clothing, everything just changed, Okay. And it says there that it was altered. His robe became white and glistening. So light, it's, it's glowing, it's, it's brilliant in some sense. Okay, so that's part of it. And then as this is going on, uh, there's this little strange little interlude. If you go down the story, I'm going to do this kind of out of order. But it says uh, uh, in verse 32, And Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory. I, you remember uh, the night that Jesus was betrayed and he goes out and he says, watch and pray with me that you enter not into temptation. And he goes and he prays and he comes back an hour later. You remember what they're all doing? So I take it that that was not the first time something like this had happened. And the best way I know to understand it was that Jesus is praying and they're getting a little, a little sleepy and kind of dozing off, maybe sort of quasi, you know, in and out. And then suddenly they kind of know something's happened. Jesus' appearance is changing. And uh, then suddenly when they were fully awake, they, they get this full understanding of what they're perceiving. Then they react. So they were this select group goes up to the mountain. His appearance and face change. And then Moses and Elijah appear. Notice what it says in the text because the text is what is most important to us. And behold, this is now verse 30. And behold, two men talk with him who were Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory. We'll, we'll highlight that again here in just a moment. And it says something about their conversation. Uh, it, it, we, we probably wish that there would have been somebody taking some notes. Wouldn't that have been nice to, 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 to dictate what the conversation was like, but that was not the will of God for us to know. But they said they spoke of his decrease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. It's interesting that you remember John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. And that's exactly what happened until the time came for him to be humbled, to be the sin bearer, for him to go to the cross. So when it's talking about his decrease, it's the suffering. And perhaps they were there to inform Jesus. Perhaps they were there to encourage Jesus, perhaps. Perhaps they were there just to confirm to him that indeed what he was called to do is God's will. I, I don't know how to, I don't have the text of what they said other than what's in the text. But they were there having this conversation, particularly focused on Jesus fulfilling the plan of redemption through his own death on the cross. It also says that uh, which, was about, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So again, it's, it's leaning forward to that, okay? The disciples saw his glory, okay? It says in the text, if you see it, it said they saw his appearance change and so forth. And uh, uh, that, that they had this, this, this understanding, this vision of his glory. And it says as they woke up, uh, as they were parting from him, that Peter, excuse me, verse 32. Uh, when they were fully awake, they 
saw his glory in two men who in the two men who stood with him. That's an important part of the discussion. He saw his glory, and then this cloud appears, and there's a voice from heaven saying, "This is my beloved son. Hear him." The port, the cloud is imp- is important to us. Okay, if you don't mind, I'll I'll give you that explanation, and when we get to our next clue, as we come to it. But now, if you can just take that and just go to the next slide. I want to highlight face and clothing changed, glory and his glory. Do you start to see a little pattern there? I think those, the fact that it's all about unveiling for a time Christ's glory, and they appeared with them, these, these two from uh, back from heaven, if you want to say it that way, appeared with him in glory. And when they saw him, they saw his glory. And that's the reason John says in John chapter 1, we beheld his glory. I think we can say this with some authority and that is this this is our second clue this has something to do with god's glory at this point in in this story okay so it's very significant particularly to israel it's all about the glory of god okay you with me so far now fasten your seatbelts. we're going to take a run from the book of genesis all the way to the new testament okay and uh, I'll do this briefly, and this will not be anything new to you. But let's think about a chronology of the glory of God from the, from the Bible, okay? And this is going to really kind of shed some light, I hope, on this, all right? The first time you see the glory of God as far as light, brilliance, shining, all those descriptions that you could talk about, seems to take place in the 15th chapter of Genesis. Abraham has been called out of the Ur of the Chaldees, and he's now living in this land of promise, although he doesn't own any land. By the way, the only land that, that Abraham ever owned in the promised land was, was grave sites for his family. That's all he owned. But God says, you're going to inherit this land, and you're going to, your people are going to fill this land, all these great promises. But in Genesis 15, God enters into the covenant, what we call the Abrahamic covenant. And as part of it, they took sacrificial animals, and these animals were divided in half. And this was how covenants were ratified in their culture. And people were, if two people were signing an agreement or entering into a covenant, the sacrifices were split in half, and basically the blood would kind of pool in the middle, and both people would walk through that sacrificial blood, saying, if I don't keep my part, the blood is on me. If he doesn't keep his part, the blood is on him. So it was sort of a blood-sealed covenant. But in this covenant... uh, Abraham never passes through the sacrifice. He has this vision of God passing between the pieces of sacrifice, and it's described as a burning torch, the glory of God. He has this vision, and he's terrified. He's overwhelmed by that. Then you go to, that's in in Genesis 15. In Exodus chapter 13, in Exodus chapter 13, you have the, the account of, uh, of the, uh, the glory of God appearing, and this is Exodus 13, verses 21 through 22, and I'll just read it for you. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So... As he led them in the wilderness, God's visible presence went with them, but it was masked, shaded, if you will, by a cloud to protect people from the unfiltered blaze of the glory of God. But at nighttime, when it was dark out, it it was just like a fire. Even though the smoke was still there, the light emanated out of it. 
By the way, you go to our story here in Acts chapter 9, that cloud that comes and overshadows, I I think it's the same sort of experience that they had. God shows up because he's speaking from the cloud, he's speaking out of heaven, and this cloud is veiling his glory from them, okay? And then in Exodus 33 is what I would call Moses' special visitation. God invites Moses to pray for something, just ask something from me. And Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. In Exodus 33, he takes him up on the mountain, sticks him in this little crevice of the rock, and God passes by, but he has to cover him with his hand or he wouldn't survive the experience. But the brilliance and the glory of God pass by. And then in Exodus chapter 40, a special time in Israel's history, after the tabernacle, which was this this portable, movable structure for worship, courtyard, inner tent, you know, all the things that we've talked about. We talked a little bit about it last time we were talking about the altar of incense. But in Exodus chapter 40, something very significant happened. And you can read about it in verses 34 through 38 if you want to. But basically, this, this, the, the glory of God comes and fills the tabernacle. It fills the holy of holies. So in essence, they build the tabernacle for God and God moves in. So all the days in the wilderness, all the days throughout this Old Testament time frame during the tabernacle, there was the glory of God right in the midst. And always the tabernacle when they traveled was set up in the midst. And there was uh, three tribes on each side, making on all four sides all the tribes of Israel. And there was God in the middle. Then later, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 21, an interesting story. This is the story when the uh, the sons of, of Eli take the the ark of God out of the Holy of Holies and they take it out to be the good luck charm as they battle the Philistines. And you remember they're killed in battle. Israel is defeated and the Philistines take the ark of God and put it in the the temple of their God and you know the rest of the story. But uh, one of of Eli's sons, wives, was about to give birth. When she hears news of this disaster, she goes into labor and this, this child is born and he's given the name Ichabod which literally means in Hebrew, the glory is departed. In their way of thinking, when the Ark of the Covenant went, God's glory went with it. And no longer do we have the glory of God here. Now God in His providence, He he punished them, and eventually they didn't just get it back, they gave it back. And it comes back, and you can read all about that in 1 Samuel. And then in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 4 and following... The tabernacle has been replaced. Solomon is privileged to build it. David prepared it, and Solomon built it. And when it's dedicated, and that's recorded in 1 Kings chapter 8, the glory of God comes and moves into the temple. This is what we know as the first temple. And there's a, then you have the second temple period, which we'll talk about. But very interesting, and I would encourage you, if you want to jot these down and read them, we don't have time to read all these passages. But the book of Ezekiel... Now, the Babylonian captivity was already starting to take place. Some people had already been de- deported when he's writing his, his prophecy. And usually all we remember is that beautiful, amazing story of God coming in all of his power and glory. And remember the, the chariots and the cherubim and the wheels of the chariots and all that. He comes in chapter 1. But one of the things he has in the vision, he sees the glory of God departing. Okay? The temple is still standing. But he sees the glory of God departing. It says in chapter 9, verse 3, Now the glory of God of Israel had gone up from the cherubim, which 
which was the top of the Ark of the Covenant, where it had been, to the threshold of the temple. Then a little bit later, this is in chapter 10, And the glory of God departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. They went out from the wheels beside them, and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of Israel, of the God of Israel was above them. So it leaves the holy place. It goes kind of like the door of the inner sanctuary. Now it's at the door of the courtyard. And then finally in Exodus, excuse me, Exodus, Ezekiel chapter 11, it says, The cherubim lifted up their wings and their wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was high above them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city, the Mount of Olives, that's important, then the Spirit took me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God in Chaldea. And then he tells them of this vision. So Ezekiel, as the, Jerusalem is about to be destroyed and the temple, the first temple was destroyed, he sees the glory of God leaving, going back to heaven. Okay? So for the Jews, this was, this was not only a catastrophe of, of place, but it was a catastrophe of spirit. God who had been with us from Mount Sinai... God who had been with us from Abraham has left us. His glory has left. How terrible could that be? But not only that, after 70 years in captivity, they come back in. Ezra, Nehemiah, those, those are kind of our, our, our books so that we pin the history of this on. And they begin rebuilding the temple. This is what's known as the second temple. The second temple goes from the rebuilding after the Babylonian captivity till it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. It was constantly kind of updated and enlarged and so forth, but it was still a continuous structure there during those days. But they built the temple. They dedicated it to God. But there was one thing that was different. The glory of God never came back. The glory of God never came and filled that place. And can you imagine, from the end of Malachi to the beginning of, of, of the Gospels, the story of Jesus, there's 400 years where God is silent. God is nowhere to be found as far as His glory on this earth. They had a temple, they had worship, they had sacrifice, they had priests, they had everything. But where is the glory of God? And it, it seems that's what we get from that period of time, that this was a question. There's a, there's a passage in... In, in, in Haggai, who's also a contemporary of these, what we call the post-exilic prophets. And he, gives, he says, you know, how do you see the glory of this house compared to the old house, in other words? And everybody's just sort of depressed. Well, it's not as nice a structure. It's not as beautiful a building. But behind that is the glory is missing. The most significant thing about this place is God dwelled here. And God's not here. When is he going to come? Why hasn't he come? Why are we waiting? Why do we have to wait? And then Haggai says this. You can go to this this next one if you want to, uh, Adam. But that is, he prophesies in Haggai chapter 2, verses 3 to 9. He says, but the glory of this former house will exceed the, uh, the latter house will exceed the former house. Someday, God's glory is going to return. We have built a temple. God's glory is missing. Ezekiel saw it depart. We thought it would come back. The glory of God is nowhere to be found. But someday, the glory of God is going to return. Now, we're giving you chronology. I went in chronological order from Abraham to the end of the Old Testament, basically. Okay, 
So, and then prophetically into the future, someday it will, it will be, the glory of God will return. If you put right between those two, right between those two, you can put, that's when the transfiguration occurs. Part of what God is saying to these people and what he's saying to us, yes, this is something of extreme, extreme importance to Israel. Has Israel Jew, Jewishness written all over it? It also is saying something about God's glory. And we've tracked the glory of God from Abraham to Moses to, David, to Solomon and, and, and Ezekiel. And even in the post-exilic time, the glory of God is missing until Jesus goes up on a mountain. He's praying. And while he's praying, his face was altered. There's no description that gives us any better detail of that other than it was apparently shining and emanating light, which is the most basic perceptual description you have of the glory of God. It shines, the glory of God. And it says his his whole appearance changed. And suddenly there within the glory of this scene is Moses and Elijah. They appeared with him, it says in the text in front of us in Luke 9. They appeared with him in glory. And when they get fully awake, Peter and James and John, what did they see? They saw his glory. Now this lasts but for a moment, for a few moments. The cloud comes, as soon as the cloud's gone, God has spoken. It's just Jesus and them. Everything's right back to normal, quote unquote. But for a brief shining moment, he says this. The glory has returned. And the glory is Jesus. And someday he will return again. You remember the last place Ezekiel saw the glory of God departing? It went over to the east of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, and from there it left. The scripture tells us the day will come when Jesus returns, and he will set his foot on the Mount of Olives. And he will go into a third temple yet to be built. And he will fulfill all the, all the promises to Abraham, all the promises to David, all the promises to the Jews of the Old Testament, all the promises prophetically for us. And the glory of that temple will be filled by the presence of God himself. The point of the transfiguration is to tell us that the glory is still available to us. Now, let's think about a couple things. The glory is within Jesus. Thank you for bringing that up. I want to take you just to a couple verses. And I think the disciples, they didn't really know what to do with this. And then Peter makes this statement. And, you know, I, I feel total empathy for Peter because sometimes my mouth gets me in trouble. But he says, middle 33, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make for thee three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. He missed the point. But you've got to understand, from his Jewish point of view, where did the glory of God belong? It belonged in a tabernacle. Where did the glory of God, where was it housed? In a tabernacle. He sees Moses in, in, in glory. He sees Elijah in glory. He sees Jesus in glory. So why not we build a tabernacle for three of them? Probably wasn't a real great idea, but you can kind of see how he got there, can't you? Actually, if he had just said, it's good for us to be here and stop the sentence there, he'd have been better off. He always just kind of goes half a sentence too far. Maybe you can relate to that. But part of what was designed for these three men and for us as the, the people who would follow in their footsteps thereafter of the disciples is simply this. This Jesus that we serve is no mere man, even though they looked at him 
He looked like a mere man. In the, in, in, back in, the, in, in, in uh, Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah 53, it says there's, there's nothing about his appearance that was, in essence, if you let me paraphrase, outstanding. He just was ordinary. He just looked like every other Jewish man of his age. So there was nothing in this humanness that, that would tell you, that's the Messiah. That's the Lord. That's God present with us. And you and I can sort of fall into the same trap. That somehow we just fail to contemplate fully that Jesus is God. That Jesus is Lord. That Jesus emanates the glory of God. And we need to be reminded that he's not common. He's not ordinary. He's not like us. Let me take you to a verse that's found in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where Paul kind of talks about the glory of God. He says, therefore, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That means bringing God glory, giving God credit. But there's some tie to say that even in the ordinary stuff of life, even in the sum total of life, we do what we do because we connect to this Lord who is a Lord of glory who is a God of significance, a God of supremacy, a God who is above all. And I think when they were standing there on that mountain, I think that's why it's included in the Gospels for us to read. Just have this little, I think this is the point, just to remind us that he possesses glory. And the glory returned to, to, to Israel. You remember where Jesus departed from when he was ascended into heaven? Same place. And so it, it, it's, it's all about this, this, this significance that he came, he departed, but someday for us he's going to come back. Let me take you to the next to the last verse in the, the epistle of Jude, verse 24. Only one chapter, there's no chapter designation. Because God says this is, this is our future. And this is a sort of a, a, a statement of Benedict. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Isn't that good? I'm so glad. And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Our destiny is to bask in the glory of God. We talked about it when we studied Revelation together. The New Jerusalem, it's all transparent. It's colorful, but it's transparent. Because wherever you go in this city or whether you're without that city, there's no sun or moon needed to lighten the, 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 the surrounding territory Because God and the Lamb are the light of that city, emanating the glory of God and allowing us, us, to feel the the blaze of the glory of the presence of God every moment of every day for all eternity. If that is our future, and this is to be our present, I think this story is included to just say, hey, wake up, people. Pay attention to this. Jesus possesses all that God is and the glory of God. It has been proven in this one little peak onto the other side for a brief, pardon the the use of the language, but a brief shining moment to tell us that he's glorious and to remind us that he's to be loved, he's to be served, that he's not to be this little pie-wedged, segment of our life 
you know, I've got this part of my life and that part of my life and this thing I'm doing, this thing I'm interested in. And yeah, I love the Lord. It's, it's sort of segmented over in this little, this little subset of the whole. No, he's the point of it all. Without him, we would never exist. Without him, we would not continue to exist. All things were created by him and for him. And in him, all things literally stick together somehow. It's, it has its cohesiveness in the power of God and his created reality. And without him, we have no future. We have no hope. But with him, we have the promise of being swept faultless. Faultless. We're not faultless. But what he's done, cleaning us up, we're faultless. To be in the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. I hope that puts a little joy in your heart even now. Let's pray.